Lord, we also continue to pray for Sharon and the ministry that you've called her to in Mexico, and we praise you for just her dedication and her commitment to people down there and her desire to end her career there. And we desire that you continue to sustain her and strengthen her and give her all that she needs to to finish well, to complete what you have called her to do. This morning we also desire that your word come alive to us, that we may understand what you are communicating and that it would impact us in a way that we would go out and impact the world which we live in. So we commit our time to you, desiring that you would have your way this morning amongst us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the study of Romans, some people find it a little complicated, and some passages are. We spent six weeks on one sentence one time, not too long ago. And it might raise in your mind, why does Paul go into such detail, and why is it so, in some cases, theological? In fact, a lot of cases... Book of Romans is very theological, the most theological book of the whole Bible, in fact. And I think the answer to that question is, this is such an important area in terms of understanding. Remember, it's written to believers in Rome. So I show these because real people, real places, real history real events that took place in time, but because Romans and every book of the Bible is inspired, it has just as much application to us today, thousands of years later. But Paul writes, I think in theology and detail, in order that the Christian understand as precisely and as clearly as he can, particularly the gospel message, because that's the emphasis of these early chapters. It's not written to an unbeliever, because an unbeliever would not be able to get past verse 18, where he starts the section. But he wants, I think, believers to be crystal clear on the gospel. And you might think, well, isn't it simple enough? Well, look out in the world and listen to people presenting the gospel, and there's a lot of confusion out there. In fact, there's a lot of distortion, even from uh, good Bible teachers in some cases. Not a clear understanding. One of the clearest passages dealing with the essence of the gospel is this chapter that we're looking at, chapter 4, where Paul is now illustrating the essence of what he discussed in that key passage in chapter 3. So we're looking at a very important chapter by way of illustration, he's going to use an illustration from the Old Testament to make the same point that he's already made, and we'll see allusions to that. Kind of a summary of this main section, he's dealing with the issue of justification, theological terms. We spent a lot of time developing and trying to explain the idea Justification is the theological term that speaks of how God now, as a result of what Christ did, can deal with lost human beings. Through justification, now we can have a relationship. So it it is basically simple, but there are a lot of elements to it that will challenge uh, any believer. So we've been looking at justification, and the key passage is verse 21 through 26, where Paul 
explains that it is provided, it's available for unbelievers. And that's just one sentence, if you remember. We took six weeks in one sentence because it's not easy. And then he expands on that in verses 27 to 31, where he gives the priority for justification. And he re-emphasizes that it's by grace, it's not by law. In fact, you can't do anything to gain any merit, either as a believer or as an unbeliever, in the flesh or as an unbeliever, in, obviously in the, in the old nature, or you could call that the flesh as well. So he goes into great detail and great pains to emphasize that there's nothing that you can do. The very best that a human being can do from God's perspective is like filthy rags. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. So it's not by effort. The emphasis in 27 to 31, the priority justification is by faith and faith alone. Now, that's going to be re-emphasized when he goes into the pattern of justification. And I use that just to alliterate here. Provision, priority, pattern. And the pattern is from the Old Testament. And what Paul is explaining is justification has always been the same. And we have that pattern in Abraham. So he's going to take it back all the way to the beginning of the father of the nation of Israel because he's got partially a Jewish audience that he's addressing. So the pattern for justification is identical, what he's developed in chapter 3, 21 through 26. Justification, or a right relationship with God, comes not by anything that we can do, no church attendance, no baptism, no devotion, no prayer, no anything, comes by simply trusting what God has already done. And that starts even before Abraham, but because a Jewish audience would obviously have high regard for Abraham, Paul picks him out and the biblical passage that is central in the Old Testament that says the same thing that he's teaching in the New Testament. So we have a pattern there, and we'll look at it. Then if we go forward, the next part of this, there's benefits or if you want to use a P word, there's profit to be gained. In other words, there's, it's profitable to us. There are certain things in justification that are to our benefit. So we'll get there maybe eventually. Who knows? Next year maybe. So, beginning in verse 1, just a quick review of what we looked at. Paul raises the issue. He's already dealt theologically. Now he's using more of an example, so it's simpler. We'll be able to go more quickly through these verses. What then shall we say that Abraham, and to that Jewish audience that existed in the city of Rome, it was a mixed audience, Gentiles and Jews. Now he's focusing on his fellow Jews. What then shall we, fellow Jews, say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, in other words, Abraham as an unbeliever, Abraham by descent, in other words, by human propagation, you might say, what can we say about him in terms, in this context, in terms of how did he enter into a relationship with God? What did he find? So verse 1 that's the question that he raises, and now he's going to, in verses 2 and 3, answer the question and give kind of a review of what he said 
and demonstrate to re-emphasize that it's no different in Abraham's day, and we could even go ahead uh, before that, and ever since Abraham, people came into a right relationship with God in the same way. And just as, uh, as is true today, the common idea of the first century is you have to do something. You have to be good. You have to do good things. You have to do human effort to please God. And from the Jewish perspective, you had to obey the law. So he's going to counter that in the passage and emphasize that it's simply trusting in what God has done, not anything that we've done. So what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? The answer, for if Abraham, and he raises kind of a logical question here, if Abraham was justified by works, in other words, if he came into that right relationship, justification is the theological term, if he was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. In other words, you know, I can look at my baptism, I can look at my devotion, I can look at all the things that I've done. Uh, this puts me in a good standing, shouldn't it? Well, Paul's going to refute that. Then he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, he's not putting down good things, or he's not putting down good works. The Bible emphasizes that. But you can't gain a, a relationship or a standing before God on the basis of that. In other words, we do those things to show that God has worked a miracle in us, and now we have a relationship to him that reflects that. In other words, we have conversion. That comes after, but it has nothing to do with gaining merit before him. So boasting in itself is not bad. It's not a negative thing, but uh, there's no merit. There's no advantage or there's nothing gained in trying to gain favor by doing things before God. And just to give you some examples, in fact, let's look these up, uh, because there's several passages in the New Testament that uses the identical same word that we have in verse 2. So he's not down on positive actions or things that we can, in fact, boast in, but you'll notice the emphasis is not necessarily entirely human effort. In fact, a lot of it is what God has done, and we can boast in that, that he's used us as his instruments, for example. He talks about his own ministry. Look at that. Somebody look that one up and go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 9, 15, and 16. Paul is boasting about spiritual things, but he's doing it as a believer and if you want to boast, these are the things to point to. In other words, God has already converted him, has nothing to do with justification. It has everything to do with now he's walking in the Spirit, allowing God to use him as an instrument. And that's commendable. He's got it. You've got 9, 15, and 16. You got it, Connie? Why don't you uh, look up the next one, 2 Corinthians, verse 1 through 14. Paul also boasts, and these are spiritual things that he's boasting about, the believers that he had a relationship with, and we have an example, in fact there's several, there's other passages as well, I've got a couple of them up there, we'll look up 2 Corinthians 1.14, so he boasts in what God is doing amongst fellow believers. He also tells us that the Corinthians themselves, in 2 Corinthians 5.12, you want to do that one, Bob? 
Corinthians boasted in Paul and boasted in his ministry. The point I'm making is Paul is not running down those things that God can do through us, but this is all after we have that right relationship. We can't gain that relationship through any of these things that he has. And we could go on, we can boast in God himself. In fact, that's the greatest area of boasting that we can boast because there's much that God has done for us on our behalf and through us, etc. We won't look those up, but there's a couple of passages, Romans 5.2, 5.11, there's others as well. We can even boast in the troubles that we experience, tribulation. And Paul, in that passage, Romans 5.3, is boasting in tribulation. Why does he boast in that? Because what it is, it's evidence that he is, in fact, in the battle. He is, in fact, suffering because he's a believer. And he's experiencing persecution. He used the word tribulation there. And that's evidence that God is using him. And it's evidence that he is justified. It's evidence that God has work that he's doing and he's resist, being resisted as a result of that work. We won't look that one up, but a couple of them in Romans. you got chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 9, 15, 16. You want to read that? Notice the word boast in there. Maybe translated a little bit differently. I don't know what version you're using, but read it. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that have done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. His boasting void? In other words, the things he's talking about are the things that he was doing amongst the Corinthians. Okay. When I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I Okay. So he's talking about spiritual things. In other words, good things. Boasting about them. He doesn't want his boasting to kind of go by the wayside. All right. Boasting concerning the believers that have trusted in Christ as a result of his ministry. You got that one? 2 Corinthians 1, 14. As you have understood, as you will come to understand fully that you cannot boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Okay, Paul is going to boast concerning them, concerning the believers. Because it's glorious. It's, it's what God did, but the boast is really glorifying God ultimately. Not the things we do. But there's a sense in which there's satisfaction and even boasting that God is so pleased to use Paul and others and he can do the same in our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.12, got that one, Bob. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. Proud, that's the same word we have here. In other words, a boast or a source of boasting. So that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. In fact, it's used two times there, translated pride in that translation. So it's not a negative thing, but there's nothing that we can boast about or there's nothing that we can do in terms of gaining a relationship. And that's the whole context of what we're dealing here. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God, because there's nothing that we can do to gain a standing. So he's reiterating that. Now he's going on, and here's the point that he's getting to. Is this something new? 
Am I starting a cult here that is totally different from the Old Testament? Am I introducing a new idea that has never been seen before? Or, in a Jewish audience, we can say, okay, Paul, prove it. You need to show it from the Old Testament. If you can't, then get out of here. And what Paul is doing is he's going to show, because in the Jewish mind, remember the quote I read to you last week? There's several others that, that illustrate the same idea that has always persisted even from the time of Abraham. There's something in our nature that you can see today people have in their minds. In fact, some churches even teach the idea that you have to do things to gain a standing before God. And that's ingrained and that's part of us. And that was the situation amongst the Jews. In fact, when they looked at Abraham, when it says Abraham believed God, there's the passage. When people in the first century and Jews even before that thought of Abraham, they thought, well, Abraham, wasn't he obedient? He left Ur of the Chaldees when God called him. Obedience, isn't that good works? He left. What about when the families grew to a point and the flocks grew that the, the land was not able to sustain the two families? Remember in chapter 13? What does Abraham do? Even though he had priority and he had the calling and he had what God had announced to him, yet he said, no, I'm not going to take advantage of that position. He let Lot choose the best land. So Lot does that. Couldn't you say, well, isn't that a meritorious idea? Isn't that something, isn't that like a good work? Putting himself, sacrificing his own, perhaps needs of pasture land, etc., and said, no, you, Lot, go ahead and you choose the best or whatever you want, and I'll, I'll take what remains. You could look at that. Remember when Lot was taken? Chapter 14, the armies from the north came and invaded. It took Sodom and the cities of the plain where Lot chose. And uh, Lot and the family and others in that area were taken captive. Chapter 14, what does Abraham do? He does something. He organizes and goes and does battle and releases Lot. And the king of Sodom wants to reward him for his good works. The Jews would look at all of these things and say, well, don't those things bring merit before God in the life of Abraham? And then what's the prime example in Abraham's life when God called him to sacrifice his son? What does he do? After years of years of waiting... After Sarah is barren and very, very old, not only barren, she never bore a child, and now she's well past. I don't know what the age of menopause in those days was, but she was double that of today. So she's dead, dead, double dead, and he's 100 years old. He's pretty dead himself. And now they have a son later, supernaturally. God produced it. Now God says, okay, sacrifice him. Isn't that an act of obedience? That's kind of the highest act of obedience you can think of. In fact, it's the greatest example you can come up with from the Old Testament. The Jewish people would point to all of these things and look at them as meritorious. And what does Paul say? Not before God. In other words, yes, those are good. But in terms of a standing, in terms of salvation, in terms of heart conversion, it's like filthy rags very best that can be done. 
Abraham, what? One commentator says, he believed, not achieved to gain standing before God. Abraham believed God and what? What did God do in response to trusting? Abraham trusted the promise that God had made to him that would ultimately end up in a particular seed or a particular descendant. So he's believing in a future descendant that would die on the cross for his sin. He is believing in a future work that God will accept as payment for sin. He's looking forward. Now, last week, I think I misspoke. I think I said, what did I say? Something to the effect of the object of faith is different. The means by which we come into a relationship is by faith, but the object, uh, that's not quite accurate. I should have stated it a little bit differently. What I meant was the content rather than the object. The object is the same. The object is always what God is going to do through the Messiah. Even before the idea of a Messiah came, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. In other words, there's a descendant that will come that will resolve the issue of sin. It's not clear in 3.15, Genesis 3.15, but it ends in terms of Christ dying on the cross. So it always ends there. We look back at what Christ did on the cross. That is the only work that God accepts, because that's the perfect sacrifice. It's the only work that God accepts for justification, for salvation, for entering into a relationship with him. So Abraham believed God. There's the key there. And what does God do? It was it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, last week we started looking at that word, so let's pick it up again. And let me conclude the word study that we looked at. I emphasized, and I'm not going to go over this in detail. We looked at it a little bit more last week. But notice how often the word occurs. Do you remember how many times it occurs in chapter 4, this word? Eleven times. Paul, well, the, the New Testament uses it, uh, I think. Let's see, what was it? I've got the numbers somewhere in here. 41 times. Curse 41 times. Logizomai, I'll show it to you in a moment. Paul uses it 35 of the 41 times. And one-fourth of it, you could say, occurs here in chapter 11. So this is a very important word and it has some theological implications. So he uses it in verse 3, the, word, the verse that we just looked at, verse 4. Now to the one who works his, his wages is not, not credited. Verse 5, his faith is credited. Verse 6, to whom God credits, same word. And in verse 8, blessed is the man who sinned, the Lord will not take into account, same word. Translate a little bit differently, same word. And then verse 9, for we say faith was, what? Credited, same word there, legizomai. Verse 10, and it was credited, there you go. Down in verse 11 at the beginning, righteousness might be credited. This is an important theological term, so we need to look at it carefully. And even towards the end, verse 22 through 24, therefore it was also credited to him. Same word. 23, it was credited to him. 24, but for our sakes also. So in the first century, years after Abraham, we could say for us in the 21st century, for our sake also to whom it will 
be credited, same word. So it's very important. There's the Greek word, logizomai. We said it's a term that is related to logic or reasoning or thinking. The beginning of it is lagas. That's the word, word. In the beginning was the lagas, or in the beginning was the word, and the, the lagas was with God, or the word was with God. And the Lagos was God, referring to Jesus. Jesus is the word. So it has this idea of word or thinking or logic. It's also a mathematical term. And it's more commonly an accounting term that was used amongst accountants. Balancing the books. And it's used somewhat in that sense. But we're not talking about money. In this case, we're talking about eternal things that's credited to our account. So it's a mathematical term. We looked at Philemon 18, where it's used in that kind of everyday sense where it was a runaway slave. Remember that? The runaway slave. Anisimus, that's right. Wrong first century guy. He ran away. He's a runaway slave. In those days, a runaway slave could be executed. Capital crime. He somehow runs into Paul, or Paul runs into him. Paul leads him to Christ. He's converted now. He's very useful to, to Paul. In fact, Paul disciples him, and he's starting to grow as a believer. But he knows that he has to send him back to Philemon, who is the slave owner in the first century. So he sends him back with the letter, Philemon, and he tells Philemon... If he still owes you, and usually a runaway slave will take some resources, so he probably stole from the the master and probably did other things as well. But now he's converted, and Paul wants to make it right. So he sends him back, and he tells Philemon, if he still owes you anything, what uh, what does Paul say? Put it to my account. In other words, I will make good on it. In other words, Onesimus has no resources, but I will make good on it. He still owes you. Okay? That's the idea. That was the everyday idea. In other words, credit it to my account, I'll make good on it. I'll pay it off. I'll pay the debt off. It's like co-signing on a loan. You don't have any credit whatsoever, but you're, well, most of you are already well beyond that. Let's say your children (laughs) have no credit whatsoever. And your son comes up to you and say, Dad, they won't give me a loan. I mean, I don't have any credit. They have no reason to trust me. You make the phone call. You have good credit. You have an account there. And the bank doesn't necessarily transfer funds from your account to your son. But the bank, from your signature, just your name, co-signing, now the bank looks at the credit of your son like you. In other words, okay. I can trust him, I'm going to trust the son. That's the theological idea, spiritually, of this term, co-signing alone. Your, the kid's credit is lousy, had no credit, zero credit rating, but your credit, 700, the bank says, okay, I'm going to consider your son to have the same credit as you, even though he does not, I'm going to credit it, and I'm going to give him the loan. Now, underneath that, I'm going to come after you if you (laughs) default. Okay. So that's the illustration. And the word, I said it's used in a logical thinking idea. 
Here's some examples of to consider or to regard something as true. To consider, regard, or to reason that something is true. In the illustration, the bank is regarding the son as if he had the same credit as the father. He's regarding it as the same, even though it's not true, but it's regarded that way. We're going to see, similarly, God regards us, or he credits to us, as if we were as righteous as Jesus Christ. His righteousness is credited to us. But let's look at the the beginning of how this word is used. We looked up Acts 19.27, where it's used in, in an everyday sense of regarding something as true. Let's follow up by looking at 1 Corinthians 13.11. Last week, we looked at 19, Acts 19. Who wants to do 1 Corinthians 13.11? We've got it. Connie, why don't you look up Romans 8.18, where it's used kind of in this everyday of just considering something to be true. And who wants to do Hebrews? Got it, Terry? Hebrews eleven nineteen. Okay, First Corinthians eleven or thirteen eleven. You got it. Thirteen eleven. Thirteen eleven. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put a child behind me. Okay. Did you catch the word there? Reasoning like a child. It's logizomai. Same Greek word. When I was a child, I reasoned like a child. In other words, I thought things out. I used logic like a child, or illogic, I guess you'd say. And when I became a man, I put these things away. Used in its everyday kind of sense in, in terms of considering something or reasoning something or thinking things out. Romans eight eighteen. This is in a spiritual sense. But it's also, in other words, considering something true, in this case it's in a spiritual sense, the 13.11 and the Acts 19.27, it's in a material, natural sense. Consider that the sufferings of this present time are See that first word? Consider, that's logizomai. In other words, in your thinking, consider this to be true because it is. Read it again, sorry about that. Consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to Everything in your life seems to be falling apart. So you can consider, see that thinking, in other words, and in this case, because it is true. For we can consider whatever experience we're having now in terms of hardship, difficulty. Maybe we don't like the way our life is turning out. Maybe things have taken a turn for the worse. Maybe I'm persecuted for my faith. But Paul says, I can consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. The reason for that is because we know the outcome. We know what God is going to accomplish. In fact, the same passage speaks of God reversing even the physical realm and the physical realm even groaning because God is going to have the last say. And we look forward to resurrection. We look forward to what God is going to accomplish. So anything that we experience now, we can consider it as light. We can consider it as of little significance in comparison. So that's Romans Romans 8, 18 and the following verses that uh, we won't read. 
There's another passage that is very significant in terms of illuminating this understanding. The Hebrews 11:19. Now in this passage, the writer in chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews is speaking of Old Testament believers who live by faith. And one of the individuals that he uses as an example is Abraham himself. We could read the whole passage, but in verse 19, referring to Abraham and the incident, the context is pertaining to the sacrifice of Isaac. And the passage goes to say he considered, that's the word, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. In other words, as he's contemplating sacrificing that that son that he had waited years and years, and now God calls upon him to sacrifice him, as he thought, as he calculated, you might say, as he reasoned, the only way that he could see that this made any sense was that God could raise him from the dead. And that's why he's one of the heroes of faith listed in Hebrews chapter 11. So those are a few examples of how that word is used to consider something as true, consider something to be real, perhaps because of what God has promised or because of what God has said. And even though you may not see how that would work out in present time, we can consider it as true because God has promised it. And the word is used in other contexts. Another example might be, Philippians 3.13, I don't have that one listed, but Paul, speaking of himself, he says, Brethren, I do not regard, now there's the word, lagizomai, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. He's talking about maturity. In other words, growing to the ultimate in this life. So he does not regard himself as there yet, so he strives to continue to mature. In that passage. So it's considering something that is reality in this case and as a motive to uh, further growth. We also have this same word in the passage that that just precedes the the Roman passage in 328, chapter just before. Paul says, For we maintain, that's the word, it's translated maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And the reason he can consider it or conclude this or to reason this way is because of what God has done and what Christ has done on our behalf on the cross. So that's how the word is used to consider something as true, to regard something as true, to reason out something as being true. There's also a usage, interestingly, in reference to Christ. I've got it listed separately because it has a slightly different connotation in it. Luke 22, verse 38. Let me read it. For I tell you that this which is written, now he's quoting Isaiah 53, 12. This which is written must be fulfilled in me. This is Christ. And he was numbered, that's the word, logizomai, 
He was numbered or considered to be a part of. He was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Now he's referring to the crucifixion where, in fact, he was crucified between the two criminals and shared the shame. But he was considered as being the same as them, and the text translated, he was numbered with them, a quote out of the Isaiah 53 passage. So those are the major ways that that word can be used in these variety of senses. Now, theologically, let's consider the word in terms of theology and how Paul is using it in particular in this passage, because in this passage, he's using it in its theological sense that comes out of these other usages in Scripture. Theologically, it basically has the same idea, except now it's speaking in terms of spiritual things. Theologically, it means to credit something spiritually to somebody's account. And in the Romans 4 passage, we're talking about God crediting righteousness to our bankrupt account, our account that shows a balance of filthy rags, God now is removing those filthy rags and and putting to our credit Christ's very own righteousness. It's put to our account as if we were as righteous as Christ. Now, we are not because we still have sinful bodies and we're simply in the process of growing to be more and more righteous But uh, theologically, imputation is this idea of considering or regarding something as true, and in this case, God considers it true because of the work of Christ on the cross, that we are declared righteous. So that's how the word is used theologically. In Galatians 3.6, we have a similar passage used in that same sense. And again, it's using Abraham as an example. Paul in 3.6 says, So even Abraham, used quoting Genesis again, Genesis 15.6, believed God and it was reckoned, it's used or translated, was reckoned, that's logizomai, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, God considered him as righteous. So that's how it's used theologically. Now, Theologically, also, we can think of other kinds of imputation besides the imputing of righteousness. And a very important passage is the Romans 5.13 passage, but we probably ought to begin the reading in, in verse 12, because in that passage, Paul is speaking of sin being imputed to man, as a result of the sin of Adam. So let's begin in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world, so he's referring to the fall of man, Genesis 3, and death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all sinned. So in other words, death and suffering are as a result of that first sin of Adam, and all of humanity has suffered the consequences since then. And then the verse 13 passage where we have a logizomai, for until the law, sin was in the world, no sin before Adam, so there weren't ages and ages of 
of mutations and dying and progress. Sin entered, and that's where death and, and suffering came from. And then verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not, logizomai, is not imputed when there is no law. Telling us that sin is imputed, in other words, we're considered as sinners, both as a result of Adam's sin, but also because we sin as well after the pattern and effects of the fall of mankind. So theologically, there's this idea of sin imputed to man. Now, there's an interesting passage where the word does not occur. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. But in that passage, it indicates that the concept of imputation is in fact there. So in 2 Corinthians 5.21, referring to Christ, he, in other words, God, made him who knew no sin to be sin. Now, Christ is not a sinner, and Christ was not made a sinner. He knew no sin, but God put upon him our sin. It says, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf in order to bear the consequences of sin. So the sinless one was considered to be sin in order to make the ultimate payment for sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, and then we have the reason for it in the last part of the verse, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, on the basis of sin being taken on by Christ, imputed to him, now we can receive righteousness by imputation as well. And that's the whole point of Romans three twenty-one through 26, the idea of God imputing or declaring us righteous, considering us to have the righteousness of Christ. It's by grace, and what Paul is emphasizing, it's all by means of faith. In other words, through simply believing what God did on the cross, was adequate. It satisfied. And as what Terry was pointing out, God is satisfied with that. God is propitiated with the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. So that's the concept. That's the doctrine. That's the theological teaching concerning logizomai or this idea of imputation. So now we can add this to our key terms. I've used all of the prior slide. We had six key terms that we looked at. Here's number seven. We can put imputation on it. And the idea simply is to credit to one's account, and in this case, to credit righteousness to our account. I mentioned that it's like an accounting. Well, it is an accounting term. And we can view it on a general ledger sheet, you might say, by way of illustration. So if you notice the column there, the debit column, we have a debit. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And I gave you last week the literal way of translating it. So it's the debit column is we have a deficit. We owe 
our lives, basically. Penalty is death. But now, because of what Christ has done, we receive the forgiveness of sins. So the debit is removed. And in the credit column, we are credited with or reckoned with, you could say. In fact, that's one of the ways it's translated. Or from God's perspective, we are considered to be righteous. So in our account, rather than filthy rags, God has replaced the filthy rags with the very righteousness of Christ. The balance of that is the theological concept of justification, the meaning of justification. So justification includes forgiveness of sin, and we'll see that in the next passage where the uh, illustration is expanded to David. We'll look at it. So justification includes forgiveness of sin plus the imputing or the declaring of righteousness. Now, before we move on to verse 4, where in verses 4 and 5, Paul is going to expound this quotation out of Genesis 15.6. Let me make some brief comments. I want to say a little bit more about that. Let me save that for next week. But basically, this is in the passage in Genesis 15 where Paul is entering into covenant with Abraham. Now, next week, we don't have time today, but I'll come back to it and give you kind of the sequence of events. I think the quotation is in the middle of a passage, and I'm going to try and show that it's in that context somewhat of a reminder of a past event. I'll expand that next time. But basically, in Genesis 15, this is the passage that deals with the Abrahamic covenant. So this is years after and years later, after Abraham has already left Ur of the Chaldees. But I believe that Abraham was justified before he left. His leaving was a response to that justification. In other words, he obeyed God because he was already justified. So it it's not that on the occasion of the giving of the covenant that he received justification. I think what Moses is doing is reminding us back on the basis of that justification and it precedes the covenant. So we'll talk some more about that. But it deals with Abraham's initial salvation experience, his initial faith. So now beginning in verse 4, now to bring it home and simply illustrate it using first century imagery again. The imagery behind this is basically the work environment. And he's going to talk about employers and employees by way of illustration here. So verse 4, now to the one who works, in other words, the one that is in the first century, it would have been like a slave working for a master. Today, it would be like an employee, working employer. So now to the one who works, who is employed, his wage is not, there it is, not credited, not, there's legizomai, not credited as a favor. In other words, the boss is not saying, okay, I'm going to write a check just because I like you, just because I want to be generous to you, just because I uh, favor you. So it is not credited as a favor. But as what is due, you spent 40 hours or two weeks or whatever the paycheck represents. It's not as a result of the boss liking you. It's a, it's because you did some work. It's not credited or 
it's not considered as a favor. The point he's making here is Abraham did not earn righteousness like a employee would earn a paycheck. So Abraham is not this valued employee. The situation is a grace situation. He didn't earn anything. And verse 5 uh, brings the illustration in terms of the faith of Abraham. And then verse 5 but to the one who does not work, now he's bringing it home in terms of the righteousness, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited the opposite as righteousness, but believed in him who justifies. So he's getting back to the idea of justification Justification is by faith, and now he's weaved the concept of imputation of righteousness, that aspect of justification. But notice also, towards the end of the verse, who justifies the ungodly. Now, who's the focus of the illustration? It's Abraham. Now, in general, that's what God does. He justifies the ungodly, but in this context... He's implying that Abraham is ungodly, and it's not because of any effort or godliness in him that he was justified. It's as a result of God imputing, because of faith, imputing righteousness to him. And then notice the last part. His faith, not his good works, not his obedience, but his faith is credited. There's logizomai. His faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, God considers his faith to be what God calls on for us to do, is to believe that what Christ accomplished was adequate for our justification, and now that is credited to us. Our bankrupt account is now filled with the righteousness of Christ. So that's the passage that illustrates from from Abraham. Now, we'll look at the next part, beginning in verse 6. It's confirmed by David. We'll save that for next week. And it adds to the, the same idea. It's more confirmatory. It's not a second illustration, but it simply reinforces what he's talking about in terms of the illustration of Abraham. So let me conclude by looking at the concept of imputation in terms of theology, and there's a few things that we can say about it. When we speak of the justice of God, this is his work, the work of God's justice, includes either condemnation or blessing. Either one is credited. Now, ultimately, we deserve condemnation because we are sinners, but We are looked upon or considered as sinners because of sin and also because of Adam's sin. It is imputed to us. That is what we deserve. And there's nothing that we can do to reverse that. But God has provided a means by which we can receive justification. That means it's the finished work of Christ on the cross. So blessing is available. Secondly, This idea of justification is a work of God's grace. God didn't have to do it. God simply credited us with his righteousness 
simply because we believed in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So righteousness is credited and we are declared righteous. And we can view this as judicial. In other words, this is a legal attitude that God takes. So legally, we have been credited with something that was not due to us because we're sinners, but was granted on the basis of the work of someone else. So it's judicial in that it is not, and I don't want to say that it's not real because it's it's real, but it is, it is not something that is imparted. In other words, we don't have righteousness. We are still sinners. We still have the old nature. We still have the capacity. We still, in some cases, have the old habits. So it's not that we are made righteous, but it is a judicial decision. It is a decision of the supreme ultimate court of heaven in that we are considered or, or looked upon as righteous from, from God's perspective because he is satisfied with the sacrifice. So it's judicial or declared. Now, we can expand this, and I'll probably expand it next week, but when we speak of receiving righteousness, that's what the Christian life is all about. It's growing to be more and more Christ-like, moment by moment, day by day, We conform to the image of Christ. That is the imparting of righteousness as we grow and we we begin to put to death the deeds of the the flesh and become more and more Christ-like. That's Christian growth. So it's not imparted, but we grow to be more righteous. There will come a future day where we call that glorification, where we will be imparted full righteousness that will not happen in this life. That'll happen in the life when we go to be with the Lord at either the rapture or death. And the Bible describes that as glorification. Glorification is the removal of the sin nature and the full impartation or infusion, you might even say, of the new nature. So the last point, theologically, we're talking about imputation, and that is different from impartation. Spelled similarly, but two very, very different concepts. We are not imparted righteousness, that is the making of us righteous, but we are declared to be righteous. And that's a judicial determination by God of crediting righteousness to our account. So, Kind of a closing idea here. I hope you saw. Imputation is a wonderful gift of God's unfathomable grace. We have been declared righteous. Not made, but declared. And we are considered, from God's perspective, to have and to be the righteousness Christ himself. Okay, who wants to close? Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Are you taken our sin and you've given us your righteousness? Help us to live our life of thankfulness and of trust in you and of faith. We just give you the glory and please work for us in Jesus' name.